0: You brought your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What a note. Pastor Dan, we prayed for you today, K and first grade class. What a blessing to have a note left on the pulpit for me. Thank you, what a wonderful group of kids down there. Hey, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is a fantastic, fantastic passage that we'll be unpacking today. What is the church? The church, what is it, is what we're going to look at today. And we'll read that passage in just a moment. I don't normally make mention of people who come as guests of mine, but I'm going to today and make an exception. I have two special guests that I served with at First Baptist Church of Peachtree City. One is the We Care program, daycare, whatever it is, the school that they have there. Ms. Sarah Garner, she's with us today. And also the former preschool minister there at First Baptist Peachtree City, Ms. Charlene Smith. Wonderful, wonderful. If I'd known Charlene was going to come sooner, uh, we'd have had her sing. She is a spectacular singer. And I don't know about Sarah, I've never heard her sing. She probably sings like Ben. We don't want her to sing. But anyway, she does a wonderful job in what she does. And so we're thrilled. To, would you please make welcome those friends from Peachtree City? And thank you so much. I won't make them stand because... They've invited to take me to lunch, and I'm excited about that, spending their money at lunch, and I am so thrilled about that. I I was thinking about how we could get into this message today, and my my uncle, who is a a connoisseur of the internet, he's always sending me these little things. He's retired uh, from NASA, and he uh, sends me all these little things. He says, this will be good pulpit material for you. He's not writing my sermons. He's just giving me ideas for me, and he sent me this, born a Baptist. Now, sometimes we are here as at First Baptist Church. He sent me this. He said each Friday after work, Bubba—he had to be from Alabama, did he not? Bubba would fire up fire up his outdoor grill and cook venison steak. But all of but all of Bubba's neighbors in the neighborhood were Catholics, and since it was Lent, they uh, were forbidden to eat meat on Friday due to their religious belief. The delicious aroma from the grill of venison steaks was causing such a problem for the Catholic faithful that they finally talked to their priest. And the priest came to visit old Bubba and suggested that he become a Catholic. It was an evangelistic outreach, I guess. And after several classes and much study, Bubba decided to attend mass with the Catholic priest. And and as the Catholic priest sprinkled water over him, he said these words, you were born a Baptist and you were raised a Baptist, but now you are a Catholic. And Bubba The neighbors were greatly relieved that Bubba had now become a Catholic until Friday came around the next week. And there old Bubba was out in the backyard with his outdoor grill, firing up the grill to grill those beautiful venison steaks. The priest was immediately called to come back, and the priest showed back up with some of the neighbors. He rushed into them, and he looked at, uh, he looked at old Bubba standing there, and he, clapped, he was holding those rosary beads that he used to pray with for some reason, and he prepared to come in and scold him and stop him, and he stopped immediately before he got to him, and he noticed Bubba was standing there chanting over the grill, and here's what Bubba was saying. Bubba was clutching a small bottle of water and he was dousing it, sprinkling it on the venison steaks. And he was saying this, you was born a deer, you was raised a deer, but now you is a catfish. What does that have to do with this? Absolutely nothing. I can just tell you that right now. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I want you to notice with me what Paul was writing to the church at Corinth gives us two beautiful portraits of what the church should be like, what the church is portrayed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with the 12th verse, but just now as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body for if the whole body were an eye where would there be would where would be the sense of hearing if the whole body were an ear where would be the sense of smell but as it is god arranged the members in the body each of them as he chose if we if all were a single member would want, would, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Father God, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight today. Lord, I pray that we unpack your word today, we handle it accurately today, and we leave this place completely different than when we came. I pray we're more energized, more excited more excited about the expansion of the work used that you, that you will use this congregation to perform. And God, we ask you right now to change our lives in this place. Let us be different. Let us become one, united for one cause to reach Fairburn, Georgia, South Fulton County and the far outposts of this world. And we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor in Jesus name we pray and the church said amen. amen. I want you to notice there's a statement in your worship folder in the outline and that I would call that the message truth. It says the New Testament church is not an organization. It is an organism. It's not an event, it is an expansion Of the kingdom of God. Now, we have organizational structure in the New Testament church. We would need that to help us operate as an organization, but we are a live organism. Dr. Charles Sullivan, the former executive secretary of the state of Florida convention, he was speaking at a conference that I was in and Dr. Co- Dr. Uh, Sullivan told a story about a young a preacher that joined uh, in the state of Florida and was become the pastor of one of the churches there in the state of Florida. It was his first assignment as the senior pastor of this church and his zeal for evangelism and his zeal for outreach and reaching the world. He came with his message of, of hope and and happiness and and, and and his encouragement to the body of Christ and he constantly was encouraging the church to be on mission each and every day. The fact of the matter is he was so excited about it that he he wanted to portray the vision and so he reached in the in the book of Proverbs and he gra- grabbed that verse of scripture and the verse of scripture says where there is no vision the people will perish. In fact he was so excited about that statement that he cut out big big, huge letters and taped them above the baptistry on the back wall of the church. And he kept pounding week in and week out. Where there is no vision, the people will perish. He constantly encouraged the New Testament church to be out on mission. He organized outreach events. He organized evangelistic events. He organized in-reach events to mobilize the church to be in outreach events. He had all kinds of ideas. Fact of the matter is he went one step further he designated one night and they would go out and they would share the gospel into opportunities of people who came and visited the church he was constantly mobilizing and constantly encouraging the church however this particular church this particular group of believers had decided they liked not growing they liked knowing everybody in the church They liked having plenty of elbow room to move around in the pews when they came to corporate worship on Sunday morning. They wasn't really encouraged. They wasn't really energized. They didn't want to be mobilized. They didn't want to be empowered. They didn't want to do anything. They just wanted to come, sit, hear their gospel message on Sunday and leave and go about their merry way the rest of the week. They had decided not to grow. And all of a sudden, God sends them this exciting, energized young pastor to come preach the gospel to them and to mobilize and to lead this church to be an expansion of the kingdom of God. Yet they didn't like it. Fact of the matter is, they got together and they said, You know, we've had enough. We're going to ask you to step down as the pastor and we want you to preach your final sermon next Sunday is your last day as the pastor of this church. So the pastor, heartbroken, gathered his thoughts and wrote his final sermon and delivered his final message of his career as the senior pastor of this particular church. And Dr. Sullivan says he gave that final appeal to mobilize the church, to reach those that have not yet come. And as he finished out his sermon, he closed in prayer. He stepped off the platform and was walking down the center aisle, and something strange and somewhat mysterious took place. All of a sudden, the W in the where, the tape gave away. And as he was walking, Ben, out the back of the building, the W started floating to the floor, and as he got to the end of the building, at the end of the worship center, there was no W on the wall, but the slogan was still there. The verse was still there. Where it once said, where there is no vision, the people perish, it said now, here there is no vision, the people would perish. What an indictment to that church. Folks, let me tell you something. I believe beyond a shadow of doubt. I had a guy ask me one time not long ago, you know that I'm in my ninth transitional pastorate since 2005. This is my fourth tenure in the state of Georgia. I'm trying to just match every other one now. I've got to catch up a little bit to get Georgia on track to be uh, running parallel with my brothers and sisters in Alabama. Alabama. And I am in my ninth intentional interim pastor. And so recently I was asked a, a series of questions by a denomination leader said, well, can you really bring a vision during that time? And I've pondered over that question. Folks, I want you to know that we can have a short run vision until the greater vision comes when you call the next permanent pastor. And Paul is telling the church at Corinth to find out who you are. That's why we need to do a healthy evaluation in this congregation, looking through the lens of finding out the DNA of this congregation. We need to know, the church at Corinth needed to know. And once they understood who they were, they then could find out who they were. They then could find out what they are called to do. So if you look at that message truth again, the New Testament church is not an organization. While we have organizational charts and flows to help the church run properly, it's not an organization, it is an organism. That means it's alive, it's an expansion. It's not something that we do only on Sunday. It's something that we do every day of the week. So we're not just an event We are an expansion of the kingdom of God. So Paul sought to transfuse a vision into the hearts of the Corinthian church. He did not seek to brutalize them with heavy burdens. However, he sought to energize them to be what God had called them to be and what they were created to be. So as we now look for the next few moments, unpacking 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see two beautiful pictures in vision of what God created the church to be. First of all, we see the church was created to be a picture of a body. Notice with me in verse 12. I'm going to read in the new, uh, the new King James Version. Listen to what it says. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members that had one body, being many, are, are one body, so as it is Christ. Folks, let me tell you something. The body of Christ has many different members. God is so interesting in us understanding the, the different spiritual makeups of each individual member, he uses metaphors to help us understand that. The body is Samo- Samoa. It is the body of Christ that is has different members. Now, if we look at our body on a physical being, if we stand before a mirror, that's what he's asking us to do. We notice features that we can readily recognize, right? We notice ears and nose and teeth and eyes and hair are what used to be hair, places where hair was, some's turning gray, some's turning loose, that's okay. You notice hands and feet and all of those things, these are readily recognized, but you know what? There are parts of the body that might not be as readily recognized. If we had a surgeon to come in here and to slice us open, and he reached in and grabbed a liver, some of us would say, I think that might be a liver. I'm not sure. If we had a heart, it doesn't look like that. It really looks something different. It has valves sticking out of it. It, If we looked at lungs, it it would be different. So there are some parts of the body that are not as easily as recognized as those that are the outward appearance. When you drive by First Baptist Fairbairn and you actually look over here, you really see that it's not part of Landmark School. That it is it's actually a church that's planted here on this piece of real estate. It looks like a church building. But when we dig deep inside, do we really see the church? Folks, let me tell you something. We, as the body of Christ is made up of many members, we can recognize some and some we cannot. That's okay. You see, I don't know all of you. I've been here three weeks. I know some of you. I don't know all of you. I pray to know as many of you as as I can once I leave this place. But you see, some of you don't know the other people. That's okay. And as we continue to grow numerically, we're going to have people that's going to come in that we're not going to know. Guess what? That's okay. Because the body of Christ is envisioned, has many different members. This past week, I went to the restaurant to eat. One of my favorite restaurants in Birmingham is called Tzatziki's. I don't think y'all have them over here. It's owned by a Greek family over in Birmingham and they have several of these restaurants. It's somewhat of a fast food restaurant but it's not fast food. The only reason I call it fast food, you can't drive up and go through the drive through. Through the drive through, you can actually walk through a line like a buffet line, but you don't order. You just order, they do it, and then they bring it to you and sit and you have a nice meal. And I love Tzatziki's because they got great salads. They got great fish. They got great food. They got a great pasta salad that's to die for. And so I was, uh, I'm in this mode of, of, of sharing the gospel every opportunity. And I've done this all my life, but I'm really making an emphasis to be personal, personally involved in sharing gospel presentations with people when, when it's available to me. And so I'm walking through and I'm kind of only person in line. Deb's gone doing something with the girls or something, I don't know. And so I'm standing in line by myself and there I am standing and it's just me and the lady taking my order. And she was new. I did not know her. I eat there often so I know a lot of the people that are employees there. And so, John, I'm standing there and I say, well, this is a great opportunity to have a quick gospel presentation. I mean, really quick while I'm giving her my order for my salmon and rice and salad. I was excited about it. And so I walk up there to you and I said, it's a grand and glorious day today, isn't it? She said, it absolutely is. I said, I want to tell you that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I'm going to pray that God speaks to your heart today. She said, let me tell you what God's teaching me in my prayer life. And for the next 10 or 15 seconds, she starts presenting the gospel to me. I said, wow, I've never met this young lady. And all of a sudden here, all of a sudden I've met a sister in Christ Jesus. She happens to be a member of my church. I didn't even know that she went to the church at Brook Hills. Most of the people in the church at Brook Hills don't even know that I'm a member of the church at Brook Hills. God, I'm never there. But ironically, they cash my tithe check every week. I don't know what that's all about. You know, we, we understand something, folks. We're not going to know everybody. The body of Christ has many members. It's a home, and it houses many members. The picture of the body of Christ, not only is it a home, but it's also temporal. The body of Christ is a temporary housing place. Now, I want you to know that we, if we, as Christ followers, we will spend all of eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a temporary house, and the life expectancy of our lives on this planet, it may be 80, 90, but we will spend a long time. Francis Chan, one of the great writers and one of the great pastors in California has written several books and he has a wonderful illustration and I wish I had thought to bring it with me today. It's an illustration that he used about eternity and he takes this long, several hundred foot of rope and he dips one end, about four or five inches of it bent in red paint. And he dips it in paint. And he's holding it where you can see the red paint. And then all you see is the rest of that natural rope. He says, this red paint represents the temporary body that you have here on this earth. When you think about spending eternity, all of eternity, everlasting life with Christ Jesus, represents that lengthy piece of rope. This short span right here is temporary. All that span of rope is for eternity. Folks, the church, the church is the body because it, it's a home. The church is a body because it is temporary. It's temporal. And that one day, I know one day, this old body is going to give out. And the last breath in this old physical body is out. And there's going to be a service, I'm sure. Somebody's going to put together something. Maybe somebody nice that likes me. Those two or three people that like me in this world. They're going to say, well, we ought to have a service for old Dan. And so we'll put him in this box. And we're going to roll him here in front of the church. And we're going to have a couple people stand up. Maybe Charlene will still be alive at that time. And she'll come sing something nice over me. And maybe one or two people will say something nice. And I pray somebody remembers I said, do not open the lid. There's no reason for you to look at that in there. It doesn't look as good as it does now. Amen. And so don't look at that. And so all of a sudden, somebody's going to pop that lid and look in there and see what's in there, right? And they're going to walk by and inevitably somebody's going to say, well, doesn't he look natural? What is natural about that? He is decaying as we speak, right? There's nothing natural about that. You can't put a nice enough suit on that to make it look pretty. They just can't. But to me, my glorious body is already over in heaven. We're spending all of eternity. So this body is temporary. It's a church. The church is not a not only a church is a body because it has it is a home and it's temporary, but it also has a head. Look what the verse says in verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many members. And all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. The glorious part about being a part of the New Testament church is that the body, yes, we are one, many members, but we are one. And that one body has one head. Not two heads on one body, we have one head on one body. One of the infallible proofs of the validity of the New Testament church today is that it is alive, is a live expansion. If Christ would not have been the head of the church, the church would never have been birthed. Even if it had been birthed, it would never have remained alive. So Christ is the head of the church. Let me see if I can illustrate that. I've had the privilege to preach around the world several times and I was in Italy not long ago and I was speaking at a conference there in Rome, one of the greatest cities on the planet, it's Rome, Italy, fantastic. The art and all the, the history that you could see in Italy is just staggering, Inevitably, I always try to build in at least one day that I can have just kind of by myself and kind of jump on the metro and go see some things. And I always try to go back to Paul's prison and where he wrote young Timothy to bring the parchments, bring my coat, come before winter. And I go there to that place where they find, where they they believe that Paul spent his last days. And then I go to the Colosseum and inevitably I usually pop by the Vatican. The Vatican is where the, the Pope lives. That's the head of the Catholic Church. And I go by there because they are. And the St. Peter's Basilica, the largest worship facility in the world. Spectacular facility. Well, recently when I was there, I noticed something. There's these offshoots on the St. Peter's Basilica that you don't see from television. They are little chapels that are stuck out. You can get to them just by walking right out. They're just offshoots right out the sides. And then there's a hall back by the altar back there that I just kind of moseyed my way back there, kind of not on tour with the rest of the people. I was just kind of walking around doing my thing, you know. And so imagine that, huh? I was walking back by there and I noticed it was called the Hall of Popes. I said, well, this ought to be interesting. I walk over there and I see this huge marble plaque chiseled the names of all the heads of the Catholic Church. Well, that's a pretty good thing. It had the dates that they lived and died and when they became pope, and they, then they died. And it had all the way down, even all the way down to, uh, to, to the, the latest pope at that time was Benedict, and, and now Francis is the pope, and so I, he, he's the head of the Catholic Church. And so I, I saw Benedict's name and John Paul and all those guys that I remembered, all this. And then it goes all the way up to the top Ben, and then at the big, big letters, much larger font than the rest is the first pope, Simon Peter. And it said the head of the church, and I wanted to say, "Mm mm-mm, let me get a chisel and a hammer, and let's fix this for these folks because their theology is completely wrong. Simon Peter was not the head of the church. Simon Peter was one of the apostles. King Jesus is the head of the New Testament church. Amen? Amen. And we at First Baptist Fairbath need to chisel that into our hearts that he is the driving force. He is the director of our lives. He is our organizational chart. It looks not uh, the the senior pastor, the deacons, and the leaders and staff. It is King Jesus is the head of the church. And that's what Paul was telling to the church at Corinth that day. For as the body is one, hath many members, and all the members that are one, being many one, are one. So also is Christ. For 2,000 plus years, many have tried to stamp out the New Testament church to no avail. They can't do it because Christ is head of the church. He will not let it happen. Our job as believers of Jesus Christ is not to seek our will for the church our job is to seek his will for the church. We uh, should have a desire to have turn our business meetings into prayer meetings, prayerfully seeking the will of God, not to be some form of democracy, but to be a theocracy doing the will of God. Notice what it says in verse 25, there, there, that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. The members have the same care for one another. So the church not only has a head, but the church is a body because it's harmonious. It has harmony to it. It's, it there's no Mr. Big or Miss Little in the church. There's no nobodies. Everybody is a somebody in the New Testament church. When you look at this particular verse 27, notice what it says. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it, meaning every one of us have different spiritual giftedness. Miss Judy is a magnificent, if you haven't noticed, a magnificent pianist. Not only is she a magnificent pianist, but she conducts the bell choir. She, she and all the ding hanging out together. And they're just hanging out and having a big time. And I can't wait to hear them pof- share their talents. There are many people in this room that are gifted. Ben is phenomenal. Bible teaching, training up our young champions for Christ. And all our folk here, Lewis directs and orchestrates our musical worship here. It's amazing. All the different members of the body of Christ. But we're all working for one accord. No division amongst us. To the body of Christ, when we came to Christ, we had a transfusion. We had a transplant, so to speak. The Lord Jesus reached down from the halls of heaven and he took our heart and placed his heart in our heart. He placed him in our heart. As for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to notice what Paul writes to the the church at Corinth the second time. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, a new has come. The new has come. Folks, we are, if we are truly saved by his grace, we are changed. There's no anger, no bitterness, no quarreling, no divisions amongst us. When we were transformed by the renewing of Christ in our lives, when he reached down and saved our wretched soul, the King Jesus, the great physician, transformed our heart, our lives, our thoughts, gave us a new allotment in life. The church was saved. It was salvaged. It was was sanctified. It became harmonious. And we need to present that message to this world, that we are unified as the body of Christ. So the first picture we notice is the church is a body. The second picture, and I go quickly, so buckle up. The second portrait we see, the church is the bride. It's been said throughout the Bible, and you see it throughout the Bible, the, the church is called the Bride of Christ. And most of us can thumb through our, our old pictures of our wedding. I, I, I went through some of ours. Gosh, I was skinnier then. My wife had hair about this big. It was pretty. I mean, it was flowing. Big hair, 80 days. Don't, don't look at me spiritual. I know, we we'll want to look at yours too, right? Huh? It was sporty, right? I was a skinny little guy and she had big hair. Now she's skinny and I, I'm large. But when we look through those wedding portraits, we are reminded what took place to get there, the commitment that took place. We, we made this huge decision, probably the second greatest decision we ever make in our lives is our spouse, marrying our, marrying our spouse. That's probably the second greatest decision we ever make. First is receiving Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Lord. That's the best decision you ever make in your life. But then when you look at those portraits, and, and, and we see how that all transpired. But when you see the concept of the bride of Christ is different, instead, the bride comes, concept comes from a more Middle Eastern concept. Let me explain this. When we understand that God as the bride of the Christ, we as the bride of Christ, we understand he chose us. Now, I don't want us to get hung up on that word chosen because that really stumbles a lot of us. But he reached down from the halls of heaven and chose us before the foundation of the world. He knows before the foundation of the world who he's going to choose. He chooses us all. We have a responsibility. I want you to notice with me in verse 18, but now hath God set many members, every one of them in the body as it hath pleased him, desired him when you really start understanding being chosen by God, reach, Him reaching down and touching our lives, when we really grasp that, I think we need to look at it from the way the Middle Eastern marriages take place. I have a friend of mine who's a professor at Stanford University in world history He's a brilliant mind. He a, has a PhD. He's just a smart, smart guy. And every year, he takes about a month, and he travels to a different area of the world to study it. And one of his favorite areas is the Middle East, and he goes there quite often. And recently, he told me, he said, I was just in the Middle East, and I had the, had the privilege of a, a counterpart in the Middle East, uh, invited me to one of his children's wedding ceremonies. And he started telling me how much different a Middle Eastern wedding is than ours. In fact, we have the men come and stand and we have all the processional comes in and and the guy stands there. You remember those days, guys? And you stand there and you're anxiously awaiting and then all of a sudden the grand entrance of the bride coming through the back door and the music goes blaring. Everybody stands in her honor. Well, it's just reversal in a Middle Eastern wedding. It's a reversal. The bride standing here And she's waiting on the groom. And she's not seen him. It's a prearranged, it's a chosen situation. It's prearranged. They've been tapped. That's who I want you to marry. You're going to marry. Y'all are going to marry. And they don't have a a courtship or a, a dating period. They don't go to eat ice cream together they don't do any of that they it's a pre-arranged situation and so she's standing there and he said i happen to go to this wedding and he said being honest i'm just going to be blunt honest with you dan she was not the prettiest of brides i said really he said now, now most brides are all pretty he said but she was it was really not the prettiest of brides that i've ever seen but then all of a sudden the grand entrance here comes mr stud of the universe I mean, this guy walks in, and he is like, and she had the biggest grin on her face, and he's saying, I know why. She had just landed the hunk. I mean, that's exactly how you felt when you've been, right? I mean, you saw, wow, I've landed Mr. Hunk a Hunk of Burning Love here, right? You see, all of a sudden, this grin got on her face. She was excited about it. Well, our, our, our marriage to Christ Jesus is that same way. From the halls of heaven, he reached down and the Father chose us and ordained us to become his heirs and his joint heirs with Christ Jesus. You and I were not chosen based on our attractiveness, based on our wealth, we were not chosen based on our abilities. We were chosen because Jesus by his wonderful grace, according to verse 18, we were placed into the body and it pleased him. As the bride is important to understand, we were chosen secondly, he cares for us. He cares for us. I don't know about you, but there's times I feel like that nobody cares. But then I remember that Jesus cared enough to go to Calvary's cross for me. He cares for us. If we turned over to Ephesians chapter five, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus in chapter five, he gives us a beautiful portrait again of how husbands should care for their wives and love their wives. Listen to what it says. Husbands, love your wife, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Today, we're chosen by God. But Jesus himself loved us enough to go to Calvary to die for us. You know, it's been said that you can tell the value of something by the price you pay for it. When God appraised the value of mankind, he chose the very best to pay for it. He chose his only begotten son, his one and only son, to spend his life, to, take, to, to, to give his life for all of mankind. He chose his very best. That's how much he cares for us. That's how much he cares for First Baptist Fair. But that's how much he cares for each and every one of us in this room today. How could we, how could we refuse? That wonderful love. How could we refuse the care he cares for us? When we become a child of God, we become a part of the bride of Christ, the bride that was blood-bought at Calvary's cross. He cares for us. He chose us, and finally, he's coming for us. The bride of Christ, the portrait is that he will come for the New Testament church. When you study Jewish weddings, we understand that betrothal period that takes place before the wedding. When we understand that, that period, the bride, the Jewish bride-to-be would prepare for the bridegroom to come. She'll get herself ready. She, a virgin bride would receive her groom on Wednesdays. And the, a, widow, a widowed bride-to-be would receive her uh, groom on Thursdays. So any given day, week, she had to be prepared on those days when they would come. Without notice, the bridegroom would gather all his friends and they would do a processional down to the bride's house by torchlight and and his friends would come and they would receive the bride and take her home. Therefore, she had always had to be ready to receive the bride. Well, that's exactly what the church has got to be. We must be ready to receive Jesus. Jesus. That's why he said in John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled yet believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions and if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Church, listen to me, we need to be ready. We need to be ready to receive King Jesus when he calls the church home again. In Scotland, Queen Victoria was deeply, deeply loved. And she loved the farm people of Scotland of that day. Fact of the matter is, she would often travel to see them. Unannounced, she would go to their villages to see them and sit in their cottages and have tea with them. She loved to go see them. And knowing the possibility that this royal arrival would take place and that she would show up unannounced, The Scots would keep their homes spotless. They would keep their houses in order. And they would set out a a special chair for the royal arrival of Queen Victoria. They would sit this chair out thinking that she might arrive to see them. The, the Scots would always say this, this saying. They had these seven words that they would say. And it would always, no matter how gloom and doom and how dark and dismal times in life would be, this seven statement, seven words would light a fire and energize and a joy in their hearts. They would say this, today just might be a royal day. Well, I want to baptize that this morning. I want to baptize that statement. This might be a royal day for you. Today, this might be it. This might be the day that the Lord Jesus Christ pierces and said, I'm coming for the New Testament church. Are you ready? Are you willing? Are you ready to stand before your Savior? Today, just might be that royal day. If Christ died for the church, then let us take up the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and be an exciting, alive expansion of the kingdom of God. Today just might be that royal day.